Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast with Josh Peck. That's me, and you're the listener, and that's wonderful, because if we don't have both of these parts together for this podcast, uh, what are we doing here? You know, what am I talking to myself? What are you listening to nothing in your car? I find it both equally weird if we were doing that. All right? But I don't judge you, so try not to judge me much. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. It was really nice, low-key, family, beautiful, no uh, no drama, nothing, just good food, nice people, you know what I mean? Celebrating what is a holiday for an atrocity, but you know, nevertheless, uh, over the last couple of centuries, uh, we Americans have grown fond of this thing that's really celebrating the mass genocide of a fucking people. But the horror, (laughs) I heard Seinfeld was on Jimmy Fallon and he did a bit of like, it's a wonderful holiday, but it's based around horror. (laughs) Ah, he's good, man. You wonder, you ever wonder what it's like to be Jerry Seinfeld? It's got to be fucking great. I mean, I'm sure he wakes up at times not loving his life. It's got to be, right? Because he's like a human and he's woke to a certain extent. God, I, I, I would be so terrified to say that phrase in front of Seinfeld. I feel like he'd give me that look. Like, did you just say woke, you asshole? What? Who are you? You're 32. You're going to be a father. Why don't you fucking leave that jargon for the 19-year-olds on the Twitter? Schmuck. Maybe Jerry Seinfeld's mean. Because <laughs> I'm portraying him that way. Uh, but I imagine it's not always easy to be that rich and famous and talented. <laughs> I don't know. I'd love to try it. Um, Thanksgiving was great. The food was great. I had the itis. I ate a lot. I went dark. I ate a lot, but I was in a salvageable position because we ate around five. My mother-in-law crushed it. Stacy, shout out. Home run. Every dish. Good night. I mean, a knockout. She did a redefine, like a new green bean casserole recipe. I I don't even know where that came from me. I feel like God himself wrote it because I'm talking, what an experience. Delicious. But I ate and then around 6.30, I'm like, I'm in a salvageable spot. I'm full up, but I'm not completely sick. And then they bring out those fucking desserts and it's game over because I have no self-control and I have no self-respect. I have nothing even remotely uh, uh, like these things. So I go in, you know, fat boy style, and I'm filling up the apple pie, the pumpkin pie, the fresh homemade whipped cream. I've been listening to too much Bill Burr. That was a complete steal copy of Bill Burr and his podcast, which is much better than mine. Monday morning podcast. Maybe I'll link it and you guys can unsubscribe to mine. Just listen to his. He's better. Um... And I just crushed all that food and was just in a uh, bad place. I got it. I got home at 7.30, went home early. You know, having a pregnant wife is so great. You can just leave places. And everyone's like, yeah, get her home. She's tired. She's building a person. Bring her home. And you just leave. It's fucking beautiful. You don't have to, like, sit around for hours on end while everyone gets weird and a little too toasted. 
And so we get home and it's like seven fucking 15, but the sun goes down so early nowadays. That's the most grown up thing I've ever said. And then uh, we just got in bed. I was asleep by like 9.30, slept for 11 hours while my body was like in emergency mode trying to just digest all this insane amount of calories that I ingested, which is never, it's not a good thing for a guy like me. It's not. I, I think I've just reconciled that I'll never be in great shape, but I'll always be in like adequate average shape. You know, when you grow up a fat kid, everyone is so effortlessly thin when you're young, right? Because, you know, nobody's eating to keep their fucking demons away yet or to like smash down that emotional trauma that they've accrued over years because their father was a piece of shit or they like, you know, were reconciling something deep in their soul. So like everyone's pretty thin, everyone plays sports, everyone's moving around and it's just like there's no... Uh, you know, they, there's no value to being thin in some respects. It's just like a given. So if you're fat, it's like, ah, oh God, what's wrong with you? But then the reverse happens and you get older and you get into like your late 20s. And all of a sudden people aren't moving anymore. And now most people are fat. I mean, I don't want to say fat, but they're like not in their best of shapes. And then... You can go back on Facebook and you start looking at people that fell. You know, they're like soldiers. Be like, nope, fall, 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 boom. I love it. I love going back and seeing who was uh, skinny marink in middle school, couldn't keep the weight on. And now <laughs> they're hitting the Krispy Kremes and good old JP, you know, who was 300 pounds at the age of 16 is looking all right. Not the best. I don't have an Instagram body. I'm not rocking a six-pack on my page, but you know what? Size 33 waist. Not bad. It's about the little victories. Whatever you got to do to sleep at night. So that's nice. Me getting joy from watching my friends be, you know, violently overweight. <laughs> on today's show, Jeff Ross, Roastmaster General. I love this guy. He's a beauty. I get him. He gets me. His uh, new special with David Tell bumping mics is on Netflix today. It drops today, Tuesday, the 27th. Um, it's so good. It's so funny. You should watch it. If you don't have Netflix, yikes. What are you doing with your life? What are you stealing it from your mother-in-law, Josh, me? That's what I do. Sorry, Netflix. Um, go watch it immediately and listen to Jeff's podcast, which I've, I've included in the liner notes, which I don't, I don't really know how to get that. I think if you scroll down, I don't know what kind of phone you use. What are you on a droid? Eh, you got other problems. Anyway, Jeff, um, I'm nuts for his podcast, Thick Skin, which he does on a semi-regular basis. And I think he's going to be doing more regularly. And it's quite a good podcast. So if you've got time, you know, listen to mine first. And then go over to the... I'm just kidding. Go enjoy it. Um, thank you, Jeff, for doing this. What a great conversation. We got to sit in the bunker of his beautiful home and chop it up. Enjoy Jeff Ross now. Oh man, I'm excited. All right. 
You big weed guy? Not a big one. No? Once in a while when we're doing the podcast. Here and there? When we do it at night or on a weekend. But not today. You don't seem like a guy of like many um, indulgences. Oh, yeah. Turn the lights down. Oh, that's vibes. Is this how it is for your pod? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I love it. You guys ordering food? Sometimes. A little sushi. I've heard that before. Yeah, we do sushi. And a little, uh, a little of uh, a little greenery. Sometimes some greenery, just to set the mood. Sometimes people have a drink, take a little hot tub first. Yeah. And then we go for it. You have a pretty um, relaxed disposition. Like being around you is joyful. As, you know, someone who's been around you a few times in my life, I'm always, like, excited to be near you. <laughs> you have, That's like, a nice a, compliment. Yeah, you have a relaxed demeanor. Do you, do you notice that? Um, I had a... I, I would get upset easily as a young man. And I think at a certain point I realized that that didn't get you anywhere and life is short and I lost... You know, you don't want to lose your thoughts. You don't want to... I try to stay in the middle. Never too high, never too low. Do you are you actively working on that, or, or at this point have you just sort of relaxed into it? I think I I think that's just me now. Yeah, yeah. It's not a hard adjustment. What What were you reacting to when you were younger? Was it just being from Newark? <laughs> <laughs> no, my you know like you know Jewish kid in Italian neighborhood. There was that kind of stuff. There was working for my dad, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I went through some loss as a young guy. There's that kind of stuff. And if you get too down or too aggravated or too intense, yeah, you burn out. Did you, I know you, I was listening to you when you were interviewed by Barry Katz. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, losing your parents at a young age. Did you actively work through that? Like, did you have to take some steps or did you just sort of let time and life handle that? That's a great question. People are always surprised when friends ask me about that. Like, did you see a shrink? Did you go to a doctor? No, Hmm. it didn't even occur to me. I was living 100 miles an hour as a sophomore in college. Uh, It didn't even make sense to go, oh, let me evaluate my mental state. I was in survival mode. I was trying to, you know, make tuition, pay my bills, take care of my sister, and move on. I was always looking forward, not backwards. I'd never been one to look back too much and never one to look inward very often. As I got older, I think I got better at that stuff. But I was always just sort of like, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's in front of me? What's tomorrow? And that's about it. I've never been big at looking back or, to be honest with you, looking too far ahead. Yeah. Which I do think that one is a fault. I got to a certain point when I realized, oh, I see. Really successful people plan and plot stuff out. And it never occurred to me. Show business was like, be available, be ready when they call. And then I got to a certain point in my personal life and in my professional life where I was like, oh, if I just take a minute not a minute, but an hour to like think this through, plan for the future, decide what I want to do. Life is smoother. And yet I wonder, looking at your success and everything you've accomplished, what does, in quotes, like bigger look like? Like what does more success look like for you? Or does it? 
You know, I that's a that, well. There's a good question. I don't know. Sure. There was times in my life where my ultimate goal was this, and now I look at it and go, no, I don't think it was. Maybe at a certain point you dreamed about certain things, but if it was, I probably would have gotten it. Mm. I always have these weird, I don't know, like a, like a, I'm like a computer program in my head that sends me in the right direction, but I don't always realize I'm doing it or necessarily agree with it. Yeah. But I wind up. You know, to answer your question, success is so unpredictable for me. My whole path as a comedian and a roast master and an advocate for free speech and talking smack was never planned, but yet it was always there. And, I mean, because in the 90s, it would have been for a really successful comedian to get their own sitcom, and yet that doesn't seem like you're... uh, you don't seem to have that desire in any way. But yet I auditioned and I booked some and I Do did you? some pilots. Not in a while. Yeah. You know, not in years probably. But I did try to go down that route. I don't think my heart was ever in it. It seems like, you know, Mitch Hedberg has that great joke about, like, only when you're a comedian do you get really good at something. And they say, okay, are you good at something else? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's kind of true. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you hear stories about, well, George Carlin, you know, he tried all these sitcoms and he, and they never worked. So he kept going back to the stage as if it was a, a, a consolation prize and that he became the greatest comedian ever. Yes. You know, the mo- one of the most outspoken, brash prophets that we've ever known. So I look at myself and go, you know what? I did that pilot with Kevin Hart about five, four years ago, you know, as a sitcom. And I was like a second banana. And the life of it is great. You know, it's nice money. You're going to work with funny people. I was like, you know... Uh, you know, not the lead. I was like the second lead. So I got to, you know, really just sort of have fun with it. I didn't have to carry it, learn the whole show. I was like, this is a great life. It didn't get picked up. And I mourned it for five minutes. Yeah. Because as a comedian, you pop right back on stage. You're the director, the writer, the producer, the publicist, and the star. And it's, there's nothing better. Do you feel bad for those sad bastards that only have acting? Because I, you know, I got the podcast, I got social media, and I thank God every day that I have an uh, an outlet that I have some control over. Because acting, you're so powerless to. Yeah. Ugh. It does. It, it self generating your own content, your own material, is everything. Yeah. You know, if I was doing a sitcom where I was writing it, or was my idea or I was really contributing in a big way it would probably spark me I'd probably love it but like you say I always tell you know comedians and actors when they're starting out they're asking for advice it's like you got to write your own stuff if you're waiting around for the phone to ring especially as an actor it's a long wait and then as soon as you do it you're waiting again for it to come out and it'll probably not be good and you might get cut out and you have no control over it and you're sort of, uh, this is, I'll take some shit for this, but your scenery, yes. you're a prop, yes. your background. I don't care if you're the star. You're not in control. 
maybe you're in control of the schedule and the release date, but you're not creating it in a way that's that would fill me fill my brain and heart up with joy. You know, I, I I've seen myself in bit parts here and there, and I'm doing a part on a Amazon show now, a recurring role called Sneaky Pete. Yeah, and it's fun because it's you know every couple months I go in for a day or two, and so it's a it's, real drama, right? Yeah, and it's a departure, and I get to meet other uh, performers that I wouldn't necessarily meet in the stand-up circuit, and I love it. But it's not my full-time gig. It's almost like a break, in a weird way, from my normal stuff. So I'm not saying I'm. Not, it's all complicated, but I like doing everything a little bit. Is there what I love about comedy? Right, is the um, very clear. I think Seinfeld had that quote about how it's, or Colin Quinn always says it's the closest thing to justice, right? Because it's very clear. A punchline, a punch is recorded. You know what worked and what didn't. And yet, drama seems subjective and abstract. And like maybe it was good, and some people might think you were great, and others might be like, ah, it didn't land for me. Right. So is that a bit of a mind fuck for you when you approach drama, or are you happy to have a change of pace? I like mixing it up. It's fun <clears throat> to put on a costume, play someone totally different, you know, exercise a bad boy inside me that I wouldn't be able to do in the real world. You know, my character, you know, often when I get cast... I'm playing a bad guy or a douchey guy, and it's kind of fun to let loose because that's not necessarily my character on stage. Sure. You know, I roast with affection, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes when acting, you get to strip that out and just be a meanie, and that's kind of fun. It's like, you know, it's like going to the shooting range and picturing your, <laughs> you know, the, the worst terrorists in the world, you know, like you can just fantasize right or your ex or, or your ex you know <laughs> whoever you are. i'm lucky that i don't have one ex I'd, i fantasize about shooting i consider that a win solid <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um yeah it's a fun break but i really feel in my heart i'm a comedian when people ask me what i do i say i'm a comedian even if i'm acting at that moment or 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 writing at that moment or producing or something. I really feel like comedian, it's in my blood. Um, comedians, I really feel like it's a cult that you're born into and don't realize it. Then you're, if you're lucky, you find the rest of the cult. Yeah. And then once you're in the cult, we kind of back each other up and support each other and look out after each other. To that, to that end, how quickly... Do you size someone up when you walk into a room or a situation? Does it come to you immediately? Do you have to turn something on? Or I, I would love to know because it, it. I guess when it, when anything is good, it seems effortless, and you seem effortless, especially with your roasting ability. I don't think I turn it on, and I don't think I turn it off, mm. but I don't always use it. It's sort of like having a weapon. It's like having a gun in your back or a knife in your shoe. Like it's there. And it can be pulled up and pulled out and engaged without a big show. Like Superman would go in a phone booth and 
he would become Superman. Yeah. Where for me, I was walking through a club, the Mint, on Saturday night. Pico and the Brea? Yeah. And Craig Robinson and the Nasty Delicious, his band was on stage. And Sick. He invited me, and I walk in the back door, and I'm... Um, his buddy's there, and he says, oh, let me tell Craig you're here. I'll pass him a note. I go, oh, well, give me a minute. I just walked in. Let me get a drink. I got to pee. I'm hungry. Yeah. Right? I walk 20 feet, and he pulls. I hear my name. Jeff Ross, come on, stay. So I got to pee. I'm hungry. I don't know what they've been doing. I have no context. And <laughs> as I walk on stage, Craig walks off because he's got to pee. <laughs> Take it from here, Jay. <laughs> yeah, so he's got a full band, a packed house, rock it out. I have no idea what I've just walked into, and I just killed five minutes. Wow. Just ripping into people and talking smack and having some fun with the band and roasting the band. And I go, man, I really I really did that without, without turning anything on, without resetting, without a costume, without props, without material, no script. So it is just something that's part of me at this point. That doesn't mean I'll sit in a restaurant and make fun of my friends at dinner. Sure. That's not happening. I won't be roasting people at Thanksgiving. Although if they come after me, it might trigger a response. You got some ready to go. Not even. No. Not even. I mean, I know them well enough where I don't have to prepare. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All I have to do is mention, you know. The time you sat and shit at the beach, or the wood, and at my the cousin shore. will know that. Oh no, don't mess with Jeff. He knows too much about me. But does it ever fail you? Is it ever not there when you need it? Very, very rare. Where I feel like, wait, very rare. Almost can't remember. Can you? I remember. I think I was listening to Pete Holmes, and he said, "If I'm worried about wording." Five minutes before I'm about to walk on stage, I'm in my head. Something's off. Right. I'm not, you know, if I haven't given over to the fact that, like, my take on things is funny and I'll find my way through. But Right. And so is there, do you have any version of that where you're like, if I'm, if my head is in this space, it's not going to be my best. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I agree with Pete's assessment there. You know, I'll look at a few notes, bullet points. I'll never have it written out. But yet I'll say it the same way every time. Yeah. Because it's the funniest way to say it. I won't get there the same way, but I'll finish the same way. That punchline will be right. The setup might come from Mars one day and Saturn the next, but it's going to land on Earth right when it needs to. And that's just, that's just chops and trust. I trust myself. I used to over-prepare Jimmy Kimmel was the first one to sort of call me out on this. I would come in with all these ideas for an appearance and ask me this and ask me that. And I'll have this and I'll have that. And then I guest hosted his show early on, guest co-hosted when he first came on. And he wouldn't let me come to rehearsal. And he would, he would throw all this stuff at me live. The show was live back then. It forced me to improvise or, or not. And that was somehow funny. Right. Just freezing. And then it was at uh, John Stamos's 50th birthday party where John asked me to roast him. And I worked 
days on it. And I wrote this great script. And I killed. But Don Rickles went on right after me and was like, what do you prepare? You don't need to prepare. And he just would go off the cuff. And I go, you know what? I learned something. I was funny, but I spent two days on it. And, of course, I honored my friend by spending a lot of time on, you know, John Stamos is so good looking, his birthday candles blow themselves. <laughs> blow, or blow him, I think it was. <laughs> I had some good jokes. But Dom was right. If I just trusted myself, I'd score. And, I, and, and I've gotten better at that. I still prepare. I can't help it. But I've gotten better at sort of trusting that I'll land in the right spots. Hi, everyone. This is Josh Peck interrupting Josh Peck, but this is Josh Peck in his I Gotta Sell You Some Shit voice. Clip! One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brush our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. And if you're one of those people... You got to check your priorities. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. And I got to be honest, if I want a toothbrush, who do I want it designed by? A designer. Exactly. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Let me tell you, you get, you get a little bit older and you start noticing people do not have excellent oral hygiene. You know, I live in a major city where sort of the the norm, the the baseline for... Uh, teeth care is, is not bad, but uh, you get about 10 miles outside the city limits and it starts getting fucking hectic. People got dog breath. It's, it's intense. But these sensitive sonic vibrations that the Quip toothbrush has, it's unbelievable. They're gentle enough on your sensitive gums because people brush too hard. Plus, it's got a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. And the brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. My wife recently, just she got the package of the new brush heads. She was stoked. She's like, wait, you mean I don't have to worry about this and take an extra lap around Target to buy new toothbrushes? Thank you, Josh, my husband. Anyway... That's what I love about Quip, and that's why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash curious, right now you get your first refill pack faux free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash curious. Bye. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. Stamos tells a great story about Rickles because they were so close. Yeah. And says he would never prepare and yet when you went to his house, he had every tabloid, every newspaper. He was so up to date on every little minutia that was going on right. that there was nothing that he couldn't comment about. Right. I, I'm similar in that I read everything. Really? I'm always reading. It takes me an hour to 
before I can even like think about checking my email. What do you read? I read the new the, the, all the headlines and in many newspapers. And if it's a juicy article or something I was curious about, I'll read the whole thing. You know, I'll read the New York Times on an airplane beginning the to end when I have time to get caught up. Wow. I read I don't read too much of the tabloid stuff, but I check it. I see like what's the big splash? What celebrities lost their home in the wildfire? Yeah. What 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 then then I'll then once I get through the dumb clickbait, I'll go deeper into what's actually happening with these wildfires. And then I'll go a little deeper and go, Oh, you know, is there something I could do to help? Should I be thinking about my neighbors and but 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 I do stay informed. You know, maybe the wildfires isn't the best example, but I read I read everything. I'm big on current events. I'm working with Dave Attell right now on our bumping mic special, and Dave doesn't look like the type of guy that would read all the newspapers and and tabloids and gossip, but he does. does he knows he? every new TV show, every new movie. He knows the catchphrases. He knows all the stars, and every now and then he'll drop a reference on me that just knocks me out of my chair. And he seems, uh, from first look, to be the antithesis of you in that way, slightly, that he does sort of live up to the prototypical stand-up, like, smoking cigarettes, always with the baseball cap. Right. You know, like, I would imagine that he's got, like, a one-bedroom apartment in on the Lower East Side. You would think, but he just bought a $3.5 million apartment in, in – uh, in, uh... In uh, Chelsea. God bless him. <laughs> Jesus, Dave. Good for him. I believe inside that three and a half million dollar apartment is a studio apartment <laughs> where he probably <laughs> just stays in there. Right. <laughs> the size of this bunker, you know, but Dave's a character. But yeah, he's learned to take better care of his self and uh, he is hilarious. And what makes him tick, I'm not sure I know. Maybe people will be able to tell us more after they watch the show because it really is an experiment in friendship. Like he's very negative and I'm very positive mm. and somehow we meet in the middle and it's, it sparks. And where did, I, I know you, t I listened to the episode of your podcast where you had Dave on and you talk about where the whole phrase bumping mics came from. So will you sort of tell the audience where it was born out of? Oh yeah, of course. That's nice that you listen. Thank you. Of course. Um, Dave and I have been friends our whole careers. Well, before we were even friends, I was a fan. He was the king of the beginners. He was the young comic that everybody came down to watch. You know, even before that, he was sort of the king of the open mic comics, and I worshipped him. He only has a year or two on me in the business. So when he was emceeing the open mics, I was still putting my name in the bucket, hoping to get called. Wow. And... I always thought, how could I ever make it big if this guy hasn't made it big? Like, it's not even my turn, you know? I was always like, look to Dave, because he was the funniest guy. The successful people looked at Dave as the funniest guy. All the young comics, all the managers and agents and club owners, Dave was always the funniest guy. And I used to go down just to watch him. And over the years, you know, my game came up a little bit, and uh, I got more daring and one night dave invited me up just to mess with him just to come mess around and improv i was walking probably through to the bathrooms at the comedy cellar or maybe i was just down there watching i can't remember but it was i do remember that it had to be one or one or one thirty in the morning 
and sometimes you know I'll come off a plane, land in New York, and when you get in at midnight or one, there's not a lot of places you can go see your friends. It's kind of lonely. You go back to your apartment. I'm by myself, so I would go to the comedy cellar, have some falafel, little hummus. Oh, beautiful! And go watch Dave, whoever's last. And Dave would always go on late, and he's I didn't have a spot, and I wanted to get my yayas out too. So he's like, "Come on up, say hi." We would just stand side by side, or he'd sit at the piano, and I'd stand up, or we'd switch places, and we would talk to the bachelorette party in the front, or the two, you know, uh, Norwegian tourists off to the right, or the whole table of Hasidic Jews in the back, sitting next to the people from, uh, you know, uh, Persia, Iran, uh, <laughs> the, next to them. The Hasids are at the cellar at one in the morning? Oh, yes. Really? Always men, always the men. Bless. They love it because they love hearing the body stuff that they don't hear anywhere else. Yeah, not when they're davening at shul. And I always do the same joke. Two Jews walk into a comedy club. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like fun. It was like, I always tell Dave, one plus one is three. We're funny together. We do our thing. We don't need each other, but we want each other. We like it. Like, everything gets amped up when we're on stage together. It's like, it's like he's Johnny Ramone and I'm Joey Ramone. We're, I'm sure we would have done fine on our own, but when you get together, it's like... Unstoppable, jokes per minute, one after another, just flying, flying as fast as the audience can keep up. And one night, I don't even know how it happened, I feel like... I feel like maybe he reached out to me. I don't feel like I started it, but he bumped me. He bumped mics. We can do it right here. Yeah, you heard it. <laughs> Boom. We, we just, like, instead of a fist bump or a high five, you know, ball players like, pat each other's asses. Sure. Right? Uh, other, other, other sports, they shake hands before and after. For whatever reason, whenever Dave and I would get a new laugh or a big laugh, we would bump. He never liked the title. He always said it was too on the nose. Eventually, we got booked at the Montreal Comedy Festival, and and it took a lot of persuading to get Dave to even commit to going up there for festival money. You know, it's three nights. It's high pressure. We don't really have much of an act. Mm. You know, we have to suddenly define it and structure it and go, oh, well, what would an ad look like? And what would our names look like in an ad? And then... I finally got Dave to agree, and the festival was excited. And my agent, Stacy, called me up and said, "What's your show called?" And I was like, "What? We don't have a show. We just go on together at one in the morning." Yeah. She's like, "Well, they got to put something on the on the schedule." So I said, "Let me call you back." <laughs> I said, "Stacy, what about just bumping mics?" And she said, "I like it. Call Dave. Make sure he's okay with it. Call Dave. Hates it. Two on the nose." Doesn't make any sense to anybody. Is he a guy that hates most things? Yes. Yes. Okay. He's negative. Sure. Um, and when he finds other people that are negative, he likes that. Really? All yeah, right. He's odd like that. He can respect his own. So I, I pushed it with him. I don't. I pushed it with him. I really dug in. I said, no, this is the name. It's got to be nothing else. First, the first time we ever went on tour, before even that, we did one tour date in Vegas, and we called it the Ball Busters Tour. It was one show. Yeah. And that kind of made sense at the time. But we're not really busting balls except for each other. And it's bigger than that. 
we're we got celebrities in the audience and each other and we have our act in there so bumping mics it is and now that it's coming out on netflix it's almost kind of surreal because i honestly imagine like you went fishing with your dad or or your brother for five years and then suddenly it was a tv show like it doesn't even make sense to us in a weird way it's so casual we just set up for three nights at the comedy cellar and invited our friends and family down we didn't really have much structure to it at all dave won't prepare i can't get him to talk to me before the shows about what we might do wow so maybe i get him for 45 seconds in the stairwell before the show and i go hey uh, bruce willis is here maybe i'll you know, maybe if he doesn't seem too weird about it, I'll introduce him. And then, you know, that's kind of it. And you're off. Or I'll say like, hey, I really like that stuff we did about going to the gym. Maybe. All right. I don't know. Maybe. And then I'll set him up for a bit and he just won't do it. So like planning with Dave is never good. Is that killer when you're like, because I imagine there's that sort of unspoken between like, here you go. Like you yeah. throw up that beautiful alley-oop. He's like, fuck your alley-oop. It really is unbelievable because he will hit it out of the park every time when he takes it. But he doesn't like repeating himself. Which, so that's if, fascinating. So if it's a softball, sometimes he'll let it fall on the floor. He'll just let it fall. And I get hurt by it because I feel like I. it's like when you offer somebody something and they reject you. You're like When somebody gives you a piece of cake, you offer them a piece of cake and they slap it out of your hand. Dave kind of does that to me sometimes. But I also get it in that it's not personal. He just doesn't repeat himself. He might repeat an idea every now and then when the joke's not quite honed, he'll repeat it a few times to get it honed. But as soon as it's honed, it's out. That's fascinating. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so, you know, it's, I mean, it's very much, I interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio on the pod and, you know, he's such a brilliant actor and it's much in the spirit of great acting, which is like, we're so tempted to repeat what worked in take one. When you have that moment and it felt totally dug in and present, you're like, ooh, I just want to fucking do that every time. So I make sure that when the director's in that fucking editing room, he gets <laughs> that moment. Right. And yet. Precision. Yes. Of course. But, and yet it's not quite living in the moment. Like, it sounds like he's obsessed with being so completely present. Right. But uh, with stand-up, can you uh, can you live in both worlds? You, I don't think you can live completely in either world. Mm. And every now and then he'll have a home run that he'll go back to when the stakes are high. You know, we're, we've been on stage 70 minutes. We need a closer. And I'll be like, Dave, you know, how was your trip to that vegan strip club? Like a real obvious setup. And when it's on the nose, he'll go for it. When I try to be sneaky about it and like, you know, he won't take it. Yeah. When you don't give him wiggle room. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. He's the very definition of a stand-up purist. He's in the moment. It's why I wanted to shoot in New York at the Comedy Cellar, because I looked at maybe shooting one of our tour dates. We had a we did a tour early in the year where we're at some huge venues with great crowds, rock star reactions to our show, and those would have been really fun to put out there for the world to see. You know, us in Seattle in front of 
a couple thousand people. Killer. It's pretty fun. Yeah. But then I thought, well, what if what what date would we want to? We'd have to get early. We'd have to block it. We'd have to wear the same clothes both shows. We'd have to get probably get makeup, lighting, the whole thing. And I said, what if we just did a documentary style and just stayed home and invited our friends and family and ripped into them? That way, Dave can just show up smoking a cigarette two seconds before we go out, and 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 it's all familiar faces for us. And at first, he was like, uh, you know, our road shows are better. I said, yeah, but maybe not on TV. On TV, on a screen captured, it might be fun to just take over Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at a comedy club that we're comfortable. And it took some pushing. And when he realized I was taking all the anxiety out of it for him, we, we did it. And again, to your credit of sort of not falling into the specific ways in which comedians do things. I mean, we're seeing this era of Netflix where it's like every great comedian has their special and it's, there is a slight bit of, um, I don't want to say a disconnect, but when you see them up in front of 3000 people and you're watching from your home, you don't necessarily feel like you're there. You can thoroughly enjoy it. Right. But like when you watch Seinfeld special, when he wasn't at the cellar, but he was at, sort of the first club that he performed at New York and this especially right. it, it has sort of this warm you feel like in, you're in your friend's living room a uh-huh, little bit uh-huh. and I imagine that was you know pretty intentional well in a weird way we were in our friend's living room because as comedians we probably spend more time at those clubs down in down in the village than we do at our homes like, I don't eat at home when I'm in New York. I eat at the Comedy Cellar, the Olive Tree Restaurant upstairs with the Village Underground around the corner. What's the order? What do you? What's your go-to? Oh, man. The good wings at the cellar. The wings are out of this world. So good. And the couscous is really, really delicious. All right. Um, I like the chicken cutlet is really good. I feel weird ordering the steak because the food used to be kind of cheap and at the cellar and now it's gotten fancier so i was like i feel i still even though i eat for free i'm one of the i'm one of the lucky ones i still feel self-conscious ordering anything fancy and eating it in front of the other comics who have to pay for their food (laughs) so (laughs) So magnanimous i keep it it stuff that you can share Uh, i also keep it stuff that's the the piece the, the 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 uh, mushroom barley soup is really good. I mean, sorry, the lentil soup is really good. Oh, yeah. But I always get stuff that I can share because there's always a hungry comic lingering around the comics table or stuff that if I suddenly get called on stage early or something exciting happens and I want to go watch, I don't feel bad leaving part of it over. So Fair. I don't go too fancy schmancy on the food. Nice sampler platter maybe. Little- <laughs> I don't know if they have that, but it's always something to go to. They'll have like a... Couscous with some shawarma and some some Israeli tabbouleh salad. Oh, beautiful! It's great. It's great. What? Um, so to that end, do you? I guess I wonder, like, because you talk about you and Atel and how you have sort of this innate ability in which to get up and just knock it out of the park, and it's very, you know, he pushed you to be improvisational at first, and now you're you guys are both there. But is that innate to every comedian? Like, I wonder if someone like, a, you know, a Mitch Hedberg, R.I.P., or like a, a Jesselnik, like people that seem very precise in, in their setup and delivery, would be able to walk up on stage without material and just go. Like, can every comedian do it? 
You know, that's a great question, Josh. That would be <laughs> that is one for the ages. Hey, thanks. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Mm. My answer is not everybody can. My guess is that not. My guess is that about half the comedians probably can, about half can't. I think any headliner will hold their own, and even if that's just default becoming a straight person, straight man, or just laughing and having fun with it, Dave and I. I don't think every comedian can do what we what we do, and they especially can't do it together in tandem. But Dave and I together can make anybody look good. Like in other words, we can bring the stiffest person on stage and have fun with them. Yeah, you know that that part I'm confident in. There's nobody we're ever going to make look bad or unfunny. You know, sometimes a comedian will wander. On, we'll, we'll bring them up on stage. We don't realize they're a little intoxicated more than we normally would want and we'll make it where it's not uncomfortable we'll make it fun and not obvious that they're messed up but we might take the piss out of them just a little bit just so the audience is kind of in on it or if somebody is not from the comedy world if somebody's more of a movie director or a uh, movie star yeah we'll make that work too yeah you know Bruce Willis was in the audience at Bumping Mics. He's right there in the first episode. And he was there with his wife and his friends and his daughter, and he was having fun. And not necessarily a funny guy, a great presence, but not necessarily an improviser. Totally not. But when he's up there between me and Dave, boom, 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 boom. Everything he says gets a laugh. It might not be him getting a laugh. It might be Dave, Dave's retort. But the easiest setups fun it's almost like cocktail party banter but with a live audience do do people feel compelled to be funny around you and does it annoy you (laughs) (laughs) i don't know do you feel funny do you feel compelled to be funny around me no because i've i've lived long enough in this life to to give up around jedis like and because i feel like my job i'm better served serving the the great in the room and allowing you to shine because it's not my forte like i think i'm reasonably a funny guy around friends and like if left with a pen and paper maybe i could write some jokes but it's not even remotely on the same level and and i've seen so many times in life where i want to tell people to shut the fuck up when they try to go for a comedian you know i think for years and years i lived the normal comedian existence where people tried to be funny around me hey let me tell you a joke or you don't seem funny say something funny every variation on that i dealt with but over time i developed this rep as the roast master where nobody fucks with me anymore very rare people poke the bear very rare people if anything it's Will you please roast me? It's yes. like that. You know, and that could be just me walking to an airport. And I don't have to. I won't take the bait. It's 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 not really something I want to do out of context. You know, the worst one is like, my brother's in the bathroom. As soon as he comes out, he just got out of prison. He loves you. Can you oh, roast shit. him? I'm like, no, he'll kill me. What <laughs> right. are you talking about? <laughs> you gotta roast you have to volunteer to be roasted. You can't just you can't just, you know, jump into it. Right. You can't catch people off guard. That never works. But, you know, I don't I don't have a big problem with, you know, I think it bothered me early on when you're when you're maybe uh, 
more insecure. But now I don't even hear that kind of stuff. And if I do hear it, it I don't even, it doesn't register. I mean, it, it was incredible at, at Stamos's wedding. And I don't know how much uh, notice you had that he wanted you to do a quick little toast slash roast. Yeah. And you had this joke. I, and I, I imagine it was so brilliant. And yet I imagine you thought of it eight seconds before. But it was, do you remember? No, I don't remember. You looked at Stamos and you looked at his beautiful wife who's stunning. And you said, how does it feel to be marrying someone more beautiful than you? <laughs> <laughs> And you Sorry, said, Caitlin. <laughs> and you said, look at him. He looks like George Clooney fucked a possum. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at Stamos and I was like, that's it. I've been wondering what he looks like for the last three years. That's exactly what he looks no, like. No, there was definitely no – that joke, I, that moment, I had no notice. It was, it was, <laughs> it was definitely um, in the moment. And as you repeat that joke back to me, that sounds like something I would just look at him and say. Yes. You know, there's no wit to it. It's just a clear, blunt, unfiltered observation. <laughs> and sometimes the quickness and the honesty is everything. And there, there it is. There's me right, right at another Stamos event taking the late, great Don Rickles' advice and just staying in the moment. What's up, babies? Uh, we have an advertisement for you. Because that's how the podcast makes money. And uh, let's be honest, it's all I care about. Policy genius, life insurance, it's not the most enjoyable thing to think about. Most people, they don't like thinking about dying, which is weird because I love it. I welcome it. I like to fantasize about my impending doom. But actually, having life insurance is a really good feeling. It's nice to know that if anything were to happen to you, your family won't have to start a GoFundMe to stay afloat. That is true. And I, uh, look, I'm a guy with life insurance. Don't tell my wife because, you know, listen, if you uh, turn on the Twitter tomorrow and there's a couple, uh, you know, stories, young, middling, quasi-successful actor, podcaster, Josh Peck, falls to his death, <laughs> I think we can all point a finger at my wife. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. And when you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. I mean, I'll be honest, guys. It's a good thing. I feel good knowing I have it. I feel responsible. I feel like a man. I like to fantasize about what my wife's going to do with all that money once I go. I mean, you know what I mean? You start getting a policy up there, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, the millions, maybe if you're a big mocker such as myself, you know, it gets exciting thinking about that. But, you know, it's sad because I won't be here to enjoy it. Anyway, so if you've been avoiding getting life insurance because it's difficult or confusing, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com, get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Back to the show now. Thank you. Is there ever a part of you where you don't want to be that guy? Uh, what guy? The Roastmaster General, the guy who's asked to do the toast. There was for a while where I go, I just want to... Relax. Now I can't have fun at the wedding. I can't drink. I got to keep my act together. And now I feel less 
put upon. I feel I feel honored when people ask me to do something like that. Um, and that way, if it doesn't go well or they change their mind, I'm also not hurt. Yes. I know it's their wedding and it's bigger than me and more important than me. And sometimes at a funeral, people will ask me. And that's a huge honor. Huge. You know, I spoke at Don Rickles' memorial. I spoke at jo- Jerry Lewis's memorial. These are the gods, the Mount Roastmore of what I do. So I, I go, wow. It's not that I'm the most famous. It's not that I'm even the funniest comic at that event. But I'm the guy that you asked to say something. So I, I'm being asked to speak sometimes as a friend, but more importantly as part of the community. I'm representing the community, the comedy community. And that's a real honor to me. That's when I feel like the general. You know, I go, okay, you know, that makes me really proud. Those are moments where I wish my parents could see that and go, this is this guy you raised who now speaks on behalf of the legends and memorializes people. And even if I'm just up there for a minute or two, it's from the heart. I never say anything I don't mean. You only need a couple of good pops if you have some sincerity in there. If you know what you're talking about, it'll go over pretty well. And, you know, when you talk about your parents, I wonder, obviously, the plight of any comedian, you know, you hear about the pain that comes from bombing and what it takes for the years and years and years of building an act and how painful it can be. And and yet to have dealt with the loss that you did early on in your life and whatnot, did, is there a part of you that feels sort of impervious to all of it? Did it did it turn the volume down on any other challenges in life? Because at such a young age, you sort of met life's greatest um, losses and you survived. Like, you lived through it. And I imagine comedy, you were like, ah, well, like, let's see what you got because I've been through it. I feel like all that early loss gave me thick skin and the coincidences of being dragged off to karate school because I lived in Newark and needed to learn how to defend myself and and the coincidences of being into music, which is close to comedy. Because there's a rhythm to it, right? And the coincidence of being in New York, in New Jersey, rather, as a kid, just 20 miles from where it was all going down. If I grew up in Vermont or Florida, I don't know if I would have become a comedian. I don't know if I would have had the ambition to go seek it out. Mm. So there's a lot of happy accidents along the way that got me to that place. And no interesting life is straight and one line up. It has dips and curves and crashes. And something got me to this very peculiar but uh, a place I'm admired and feared but also kind of happy in people that are and it's sort of like to me I always knew that I was going to do something very different with my life but I never knew what when people said what do you want to be I was never able to answer them 
was frustrating. But it's kind of where I wound up. I, I always wonder that, right? Because you talk about working in, you know, for your dad's catering business as a teen. And then you came to comedy a little, uh, slightly later, right? Like in your mid-20s? Yeah. So was there a time before that where you ever felt like, ah, like uh, maybe I'm just going to work these menial jobs? And like, did you, was there a part of you that felt like that, that might be undiscovered? No, because I didn't even know I had anything to offer. I didn't even know I was, I didn't know funny was a commodity. I knew that I liked writing. I didn't know that I was necessarily talented enough to make a career of anything creative. So when a buddy of mine suggested I try stand-up, it wasn't necessarily, he thought I was funny, so he pushed me to try it. This is after college. But I didn't go into it because I thought I was funny. I did it for a social life to talk to women. I was young, 23 years old, 24 years old. I had nothing. I was this fat loser living in New Jersey with my grandfather. And so he's like, hey, this is a... And I was like, oh, really? You think I'm funny? Like, it meant nothing to me. It didn't even, it wasn't even a compliment. It was like saying, uh, uh, you know, you're a good swimmer. Go swimming. It was like... It was like, okay. Uh, and the class happened to be near the bus station in Port Authority where I had to go every day for my other job and to see my grandfather in New Jersey where I looked back and forth. So it was really like another happy accident. And uh, I think, I mean, maybe <laughs> I had a plan and I'm just not cognizant of it. No, I think, you know, I, I say this, for, uh, forgive me listeners, because I use this reference a lot, but like Howard Stern talks about that his father was in radio. So as soon as he remembers, as far back as he can remember, he could see that radio being of, of prominence in that medium was of value. You know, the awkwardness of life is how I use comedy. I always saw it as a, not a weapon, but as a tool. Mm. And I would tell that to my nephew. My nephew's funny. And when he was calling me up, I remember he called me up. He was in high school. And he was very distraught because he had was bored in class and he either wrote down and passed a note or cracked some joke about 9-11 under his breath. Strong. And everybody laughed around him. It just broke the tension of an awkward, boring, sad lesson. Mm. And no worries if you got to check. Oh, no worries. I, I thought it was off. Sorry. And he's like, Uncle Jeff, I don't know, what do I do here? I, I, it turns out the kid next to me, like, he lost his uncle in 9 11. He's really mad at me. I said, go, go talk to him, explain to him that you didn't mean anything directly and that you were just trying to use it as therapy in the moment. And I said, also remember that beyond that, Jared, remember that this is, you have a superpower. Whether it's inherited or whether it's developed or both, you just need to think about it before you let your deploy. tongue fly, before you deploy. Yeah. And... I go if you can do that, it won't ju it won't get you in trouble. It'll get you out of trouble. Mm. It'll always be on your side. 
but you have to use it judiciously. Um, oh, what I was going to ask uh, before was, so like when you talk about sort of um, when is it, what's the timeline for comment about something like nine eleven or something specific like like the California wildfires just happened? How much runway do you need between that and making your first joke? It's an interesting question. I have the first, I always have the joke, but you have to hold it. This right. is what creates a professional from an amateur. Mm. Like I can't help it sometimes. If I'm genuinely hurt, maybe maybe not. But and I'm not comparing. But I bumped my head the other day, pretty hard. I was in an edit for historical roast, and I dropped something on the floor, and something funny happened. I wanted to see on the screen, and I turned my head and didn't realize it. And I banged my head, and I have a little bump here and a scratch, and tense and i i was hurt like i I almost passed out (laughs) 10 or 15 seconds later i made a joke and i knew i was okay now california wildfires it's like this big caravan of immigrants was heading to the california border and they heard about the shootings in orange county and the wildfires and they were like fuck it we're going back to <laughs> the rape and murder of that we're escaping and i go you know it's kind of funny maybe i can say that on josh's podcast but Solid. it's not ne- something you can necessarily say on stage in public right away it, it, unless it's at a comedy club but it might not be appropriate for the uh you know the fireman's uh benefit yes uh, so this stuff is it's kind of like a weapon in that you really have to take it out when it's appropriate. And when it is, it's really useful and potent. But yeah, you got to be careful. You got to really understand that you're a professional and you have to act like a professional. And you have to treat your material like it's bullets or currency. You don't want to spend too much. And when you have your open shot, you take it. Have you ever felt like you went too far or went too soon? Yeah, I'm better at it than I used to be. Early in your career as a comic, you're trying to get attention. You're trying to make a splash. Maybe you're even trying to be controversial. You're also not used to being... You go into comedy because you don't want a boss. You don't want a censor. You don't want a filter. But you get a little more established and you have a reputation to protect. You become your own censor. Mm. You know? A buddy of mine, very, very successful comic in New York. He's on TV. He's doing great. But he was kind of like having a bad day. He's sitting around the comedy club after because he was at a fancy benefit. And he told a controversial joke and it got printed in the paper and out of context. And he was bumming. And he's a very thoughtful guy. And I said, man, you can't do your A comedy club material anywhere but a comedy club or where people are paying to see you a theater you can't do it at some hoity-toity benefit even if it's with good intentions of raising money and the audience in front of you is not they're not your regular crowd like you got to save that for when it's right go up there you're going to do a benefit just go up and be sweet be nice and, and and make an appearance but don't try to make a splash so part of it is really protecting yourself and your material by doing it at the right times at the right 
It's it's context and intent, like any other thing. What are your intentions? If your intentions are to hurt me, you're a dick. Your yeah. intention is to, you know, make fun of me and get a laugh and build me up and take me down all for a good cause, then you're doing a nice thing. But it might not be funny to everyone all the time. Yeah, you have to adjust to the in, to the crowd, to, to the, the crowd, to the moment, to the cause, and respect the fact that you're not at home. You're in someone else's home. You know, the comedy club's your home. Do you ever? You don't have to name names, but has there any been anyone over the years whom you've roasted um, that you sent flowers to the next day, or you felt like just a little, yeah, a couple times. And it wasn't that I felt bad about what I said. But I felt bad about their reaction. Hmm. So I go, oh, you know what? Not everybody's as tough as everybody else. Not everybody knows what they're getting into when they go to agree to a roast. You know, I remember after the Justin Bieber roast, Natasha Leggero and I sent some booze and a nice note to Ludacris because he was upset about jokes. Wow. They weren't even about him. They were about a buddy of his that had passed away. And whatever, it's a roast. We went too far. It's what we do at the roast. So I didn't live with guilt, but I lived with a little bit of anxiety and remorse and sadness that it wasn't a fun party for everybody. Yes. I want everyone to leave a roast going, that was the most fun I've ever had. I want to do that again. Guess what Jeff Ross said about me? You know, bragging to their friends about the jokes. That's what I really want. I'm not looking to break the skin. I'm looking to just scratch it. Mm. And But to that point, people need to toughen up. <laughs> it's a fucking joke. I love it. It's like everybody's getting so soft. Not to get me on a rampage right now, on a rant, but... Let loose. The, the, the White House Correspondents Association is not having a comedian this year. Really? They announced it this morning. They're going to have a, a, an author, speaker about First Amendment. Just so Trump will show up? No. They know he's not coming. And they're still not having a comedian. Right. That's so fucked. Humorless. Fear. Yes. They were offended by Michelle Wolf making fun of... Sarah Sanders. Not e and, and the press, and the president, and each other, and herself. Yes. They were offended. Everything's too touchy. So rather than doubling down going, this is the First Amendment, we can do whatever we want. Comedy is unfiltered, pure, important. It's, in some ways, journalistic, in that it cuts through to the truth. They said, no, they're not doing it. They're going to back out of it all completely and and have a speaker talk about why the First Amendment is important, which is not a bad idea, but it's not as good an idea as just exercising the First Amendment. When does a comedian get to ever speak truth to power like they do at the White House Correspondents Association? Comedians making fun of, of the king, this is not allowed in most countries. But in America, it is. And we're not going to do it? Come on. If Trump's not in the office, you know, in two years or in six, 
Yikes. Um, do they, does the next president show up for it? Or is, I is, think so, unless, think the so? White, unless this organization falls apart because they're losing sight of their mission. Which it might, right? Right. I think they'll probably, you know, not, they probably won't get covered as much because it'll be safe. So they lose a little bit of their steam. I don't know how it affects their fundraising. They do important fundraising at the White House. I have a lot of respect for journalists, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and what they face in other countries. And, you know, we saw what happened in Turkey. The, the, the Saudis killed this guy. Jesus, dismembered him. Yeah. The fuck? So, yeah, being a journalist takes gigantic chutzpah, and you got to really have integrity. And, and, and then when I see them backing off and getting a little afraid... It makes me afraid. All right, well, if journalism's going to be compromised, is comedy next? I mean, do you feel, are are you, you know, I, I watch like Rogan's new special and so much of like what Bill Burr's doing. And, and I feel like they have this fearlessness to them of saying like, fuck the politically correct, this inability in which to say the real thing. Like, because that's what comedy was always, was saying this. Um, you know, being willing to cross the line and then backing it up with this great punchline premise. And we're living in such a time where it's this precarious sort of thing where at any moment you could literally say something that will evaporate your career. Yeah. Like, and so do you have that fear? Or I feel like you've always worked in this beautiful little safe space to a certain extent because people expect you to be slightly, you know, but to, to always be pushing the limit. Until you do. Yes. And then somebody will, most people will be okay with it, but there'll be a couple that get really upset. And most of that's on social media. Most of that isn't in real life. It's in the, you know. The Twitter sphere. The Twitter sphere, they're upset. But it's still... Twitter's not safe. Comedy clubs are safe. I've stopped tweeting jokes. It doesn't make sense anymore to put your most potent ideas in social media because it's not your fans you're talking to. Did it ever? Theoretically, it should be. Well, why are you following me if you just, if you're offended? I'm offended. You're offended. Yes. Like, what are you following me to get offended for? You talk about Howard Stern. I was when I was a kid. I remember him always saying, "Like, you know, uh, half the people listen to me love me. Half the people listen to me hate me. But I don't know why they listen. It doesn't make sense. They they're trying. To, that's their hobby is to get offended. Like it's free speech. It's 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 not your business if you don't want to listen. Just change a channel. And but was it ever like? I think about the the Roseanne tweet. And uh, completely not uh, commenting on on the tweet in any way. What I'm more fascinating with is the headspace, right? Yeah. Is it like, what more could Roseanne have fucking needed? She was back on TV with the biggest show on air, crushing it on every level. And I wanted to say to Roseanne, is your ego really this unfulfilled that you need a certain amount of retweets for what you think is this dumb tweet to feel good before you go to bed. Right. Like, r really? Like, you're that right. empty? Right. 
And so uh, to me, like the whole Twitter sphere and whatnot, like Chris D'Elia says on his Twitter, if you want good shit, pay for it. Mm. Like, and there is a part of me that feels like, don't waste your good stuff on here. Fuck right. them. Right. I agree. I agree. And I support that. And, you know, I have a buddy in New York, Mark Norman, who's hilarious on Twitter. Funny. One of my favorite comedians. I always say, why are you tweeting this? You're crazy. Yeah. This is not a good safe space. And he does it anyway. He doesn't care. He's young. He, he's 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 fearless, and I respect that. But I don't think is I don't think Twitter and social media is a place to be showing off your wit and your and your provocative nature anymore. So, and I know you've roasted. That's which makes which makes Comedy Central and Netflix and the comedy clubs and, and anybody else who's sort of letting these temples of free speech exist. Those are the safe places, and those are that's where we comics should be gravitating, and the audience should be gravitating to. That should be your next special, yeah. Temple of Free Speech. I like that. I fucking like that too. Yeah, you heard it here first. Um, so I know you've roasted him before, but if let's say in two years, in some crazy ass world, you know Trump's no longer president, and he allows a select few to roast him, what's your opener? Do you have it? Just look at him and say, hey, what's up? What's new? What's been going on? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> great. You know, I, I feel like that would, be, that would be so great. He used to take a joke really well, and now he seems to be shying away from that part of his life. It's, 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 it's scary. Yeah. What about, and I've heard you mention this a few times, uh, you talked about when one of the many things you loved about doing like the USO tours and mm -hmm. performing for the troops was the fact that they weren't drinking alcohol. Right. And you seem, and maybe this is just me interpreting it the wrong way, but like it seems like it's a bit of annoyance for you when audiences are a little too, you know, lubed up in that way. Is it? I don't mind everybody having a couple of sips and a drink and maybe smoking or whatever before a show, but when you're when you become the show, I think that's when you're a bad audience. When you're too drunk to get it. I'll never I never drink before I go out there. I'll drink after, but I don't drink before because I don't want to slow down. And I started out as sort of a night night you know as a party comic you know i always loved buddy hackett i always thought of him as a party comic you go see buddy hackett show you you should bring a date you're gonna get laid after you, you know for years i felt like my show is gonna break the ice you, you bring a chick or you bring your favorite dude to my show i'm gonna i'm gonna put him in the right mood you guys are gonna at least have your first kiss that night you know what i mean i'm not up there doing jokes about how men and women are different I'm yes. not doing jokes about herpes. I'm not doing jokes about abortion. I'm doing jokes about fucking and loving and laughing and and trying to get people to kind of come together. Is that intentional or yeah. it's just what speaks to you? Both. Yes. I realize it spoke to me and then every now and then you'd have a funny joke that, and I'd go, you know what, that might have been a buzzkill for some of the people. Mm. And I, it's not even that I saw it in myself, but I would recognize it in other comedians, you know. Where, where it's like, ah, oh, man, I could see, like, even my date maybe, like, stiffening up or, you know, I could see the guys looking at their watches going, oh, boy. 
one more ad for your face. Uh, Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. What's ETFs? I don't know, but maybe Robinhood's going to teach me some shit. And then I'm going to be that guy who knows what ETFs is. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's got a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Look, 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 all right? You got a little extra scratch, right? It's the holidays. Maybe you're going to get a bonus. You put in that work this year. You're going to be sitting on this money. What are you going to do? Put it under your mattress? Huh? It's going to get stolen by that weird cousin of yours that's always like trying to sell you on some bullshit pyramid scheme? No. You got to give it to Robin Hood and you invest it and they'll help you. You know what I mean? They care about you. Why? Because... They've got costs, no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. But Robinhood, they don't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, the design and ease of use. I mean, it's easy to understand. They got charts. They got market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. And you learn by doing. You learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. So listen. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at Curious.Robinhood.com. That's Curious.Robinhood.com. Because you talked about how Chris Rock loves to divide the audience and then bring them back together. I don't think he's aware of it. Mm. I've talked to him about it. He just sort of shrugged his shoulders. I think he just naturally does that. That's his structure, is to build and, and take you on a journey and following that discomfort until it's palpable and unbearable, and then the laughs come. And you go, oh, yeah, he's kind of right. So, yeah, I also think he's another one where you don't think of him as a party comic, but, yeah, there's a party going on in there where, you know, if you watch over the course of an hour... The Chris Rock Show live, you know, you'll see people kind of cozying up to each other. By the end of the show, they're interlocked and their arms are around each other and they're laughing and they might be smooching between jokes. Like there's a certain energy. sexiness yeah. and an energy and a ice-breaking kind of following the uncomfortable topics into a comfortable place breaking through what the normal moral codes of life. And I try to do that too, especially with Dave, because when we're up there together, it definitely becomes a little bit more of a party atmosphere. And I always want to be a good wingman. And, you know, it's a very Mark Marin thing to say, but he talks about like once he got to a certain level and sort of knew, sort of echoes what you said about Attell, like once he knew that he had these hard hitting jokes that really worked, it became more interesting for him to intentionally lose the audience and then see if he could get them back. And it doesn't sound like you have a need for that. Like, have you ever played with that in any way? No, and I never understand that appeal to comics. Yeah. I learned it firsthand a long, long time ago. I was playing in Atlantic City. I was a young comic, and I happened to have met Sandy Hackett, Buddy Hackett's son. It was like the late 90s, probably, something like that. 
and I, I saw that after my gig was over, Buddy Hackett was playing the next afternoon, like a six o'clock show. So I tracked Sandy down, and I got tickets, and I loved Buddy. My parents loved Buddy. I remember listening to his voice on Johnny Carson when I was a kid. Couldn't really watch it, but I could hear it from upstairs. And I kind of, I knew my parents thought he was really funny, and I was like, oh, let me go see Buddy Hackett live, you know? How many chances am I going to get to do this? I went by myself, and the show starts. It's the Sunday show. starts earlier, 6 or 7 o'clock. There's a lady there, a little old lady in the front, and she has like a little notebook out and a pen. She's probably reviewing the show. Who knows what she's doing for her local temple newsletter for all I know. Jewish Sentinel. Who knows? (laughs) Sure. Right? But she's taking notes. And one thing leads to another. Buddy's on stage less than a minute, and he calls her a cunt. Oh, God. A couple of minutes later, everyone forgot about it, and he's killing. It's fine, but it stays with me. I'm like, oh, man. I never meet Buddy. I said, thanks, Sandy, for the tickets, and it was an amazing show, and I'll never forget how funny Buddy was, tying all his stories together and everything I said about bringing people together at all by the end was there. Decade goes by. Maybe more. Now I'm friends with Buddy. Maybe it's 15 years later. And now I'm really good friends with Buddy. Where I would have brunch with him on the weekends. And he'd make me matzo brai in his backyard. And oh, beautiful. a million other stories happen in between. Where I'm finally like, hey, you'd never remember this. But back in the late 90s, you were at Atlantic City. At it might have been Trump's Taj Mahal. And there's a lady in the audience. And why would, would you ever, why would you have called this woman the C-word like right in the beginning of the show like that. Maybe we were talking about stand-up and I was asking him for advice about other stuff. So I asked him and he goes, you know, I don't remember that, but I'll tell you, I would often just sabotage myself in the beginning just to see how long it took me to get him back. Jeez. (laughs) Just because I was bored or having, you know. Masochistic? And I, I was like, Wow. Wow. And I don't know if it was something in the psyche or he was being honest that he was bored. And uh, it, it was hurt me to think that he was bored because then I was like, is that going to happen to me where I'm bored? I love this. I don't hope it's never boring. I hope I never have to displease the crowd so that I can please myself. But I got it. I kind of, at least I understood it. Right. And I've never been that way. I'm I'm a crowd pleaser. I want them to like me and like the show from the second I'm up there. Is there I remember watching Seinfeld in his doc and he's talking to a comedian, Orny Adams, and Orny's going on stage and he's like, you know, I got this new stuff I think I'm gonna start with. <laughs> and Seinfeld goes, Ah I mean I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, you know, go for it. And he goes and uh, he just looks at the camera and goes, ah, he's a goner. <laughs> so is there anything that you see inherently <laughs> <laughs> like in a performer where you think that uh, as they're going on stage, you notice while they're on stage, you're like, oh, he's he's in for it tonight. They're, he's not dialed in. I could usually tell before they get on stage. What do you see? 
I'll see telltale signs. There's a few things you can see, and somebody's going to not be great. They're worried about their introduction. They're too worried about how they're presented. And I've, I was a victim of that early in my career, so I, I recognize that right away. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're overthinking their credits and what the audience is going to hear when they, before they hear their name, you know, or how you pronounce their name. I've outgrown that, and I learned to not let that affect my performance. Right. Learned the hard way by mispronouncing, and Jeff Lifschultz is my real last name. Early on, I knew that you got to be better than your intro. It shouldn't matter. Yes. You can follow anything. Now when somebody says, what do you want me to say about you? I say, make it yours. You know, have you seen me before? Yes. Okay, make it yours. Then you get a heartfelt, fun intro that is not based on my latest credit. It's Another thing you'll see is comedians that are um, worried about the outside world. Buddy Hackett told me, like, oh, you owe it to the audience an hour before the show, shut your phone off or whatever, dial it all out. What if your uncle dies right before you go on? You're not going to save him. <laughs> You're just going to ruin your show. You owe it to the audience to concentrate. So I always try to zone in. Chris Rock's really good at that. He gets to the venue hours early and just sits backstage and starts to just sort of get in touch with his performance and the audience and where he is and who's going to be there and starts to dial it in. Wow. Hours. I never got it until I toured with Chris all over the world. We've been to Scandinavia. We've been to Tel Aviv. We've been to London, Dublin, Copenhagen. He goes in hours early for sound check. And I was always like, sound check? You got a guy with a microphone. Let's, let your tour manager do it. And then when I started to go with him, I realized that it was more than just the testing one, two, three for him. He'd pace the stage, he'd look around the room, he'd think about where he was. Even if it's just 15 minutes of those three or four hours, he knew he had to find those 15 minutes where he's not watching TV or on the phone with his kids or taking care of biz. He's thinking about that show. And that was cool. I thought that was really cool. Like, that's an artist. That's a rock star. Mm. That's how you'd be great. Does that does that apply to you? Like, does that work for everyone? Or do you find that you need to be kind of in something right to the last minute? I've learned, I used to show up right before my spots. And I've gotten better about going early and and getting to that place of zen, fearlessness, preparation. If there's something to look at, some notes or a script, I do it there beforehand instead of two minutes before I go on stage. Yeah. You know, like... Like you said before, if you're thinking about the wording, you're no longer performing. You're reading a teleprompter. Might as well read a prompter. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I continue to learn. Even after all these decades of doing it, I'm open to learning and getting better. And it's why I still like it. As soon as you stop learning and getting better, you get stale and you don't really like it. And your audience senses it. And you turn that bitter corner. We've all seen that happen. And you start talking about the wrong things on stage, stuff only, maybe only you really care about or other bitter people really care about. And 
that doesn't really excite me either. But you can't take it for granted either, Josh. I'll say one more thing about that. Please. I did a little bit for a, a veterans charity on Saturday. And I had a gig in Toronto in September. But for the first time since I started in 1989 on April Fool's Day, wow. I took my first break. I'm in the middle of it now. Dave and I shot our Bumping Mike's Netflix show in June, and I haven't been performing since then. It's November. I've been roasting and producing and doing some acting and editing and writing and doing... I'm creatively fulfilled, but for the first time in my... Basically, in my adult life, I've taken a break from the one thing I love the most. What's that like? It's cool. Is it? It's really cool. It made me realize that it doesn't own me, which I was always a little afraid of. Would I still have a social life? Would I be fulfilled? Will I, will I be dying to get on stage? Am I desperate for attention? No. I can pull into the comedy store and say hi to people, go up to roast battle, maybe judge a couple roast battles, and go home. Where in the old days, I'd have to go early, have to do a spot, have to work on material, have to get some laughs, want to see my name on the marquee. And I was like, I think I just might take a break. I've been working on this material. It's in the can. I got to edit it. But I don't think I really want to write another act right now. And it's been kind of cool. You know, it's interesting, too, uh, to think, like, have you on some level, like, I don't know, proven yourself to yourself? Like, have you attained a certain level of now it's it's the icing in some respects? Like, when you're not chasing that, I mean, for so many years, right, it's like, I got to do this to eat. And then you got a couple sandwiches in the bank. You're like, all right, I could probably eat for a while, but I'm unfulfilled in sort of these creative aspirations that I have or what have you. And then, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that at 53 and everything you've accomplished, you're able to kind of say, maybe I'll take a breath for a couple months and, and see where I'm at. The break was not premeditated. Mm. I just started saying no. Every Monday I get an email from the comedy store. Maybe I'm not supposed to say this. Most comics have to call in their avails on Mondays. They would call me. Go, hey, are you in town? You know. And I'd be like, I'm off this week. Second week. Ah, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm off this week. Or I'm in New York. Sorry. And after a couple of weeks I was like, I think I'm on a hiatus. And it, was, it wasn't a based on any forethought. It was based on like, uh, I have no gigs and I have no new material and I'm not developed. Stand-up is always performing a work in progress. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, your act is never done and it's never starting and it's never finished. But you shoot a Netflix three-part series, your act's kind of done. Totally. I could have toured it for six months, June, July, August, September, October, November, now the thing's coming out and everyone will see it. I could have been doing that material every weekend for milking good it. money and milking it. But creatively, it was not exciting or interesting. 
what would be would be to edit it, to go to the edits or to start working on the historical Netflix show or 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 acting in something or maybe just going to the dentist maybe just going to see my college buddies for the weekend and downloading some new input some new source material for my next act which is everything which is everything yes having some life experience out of the norm normally my life experience is just other stand up experience you know going on a USO tour to Iraq or performing uh you know in a for homeless people on thanksgiving or it was always about stand-up and about comedy and rarely about me and maybe part of it is turning 50 it's not something i normally even say out loud i don't know i don't know what's going on with me my agent is kind of amused by it i think in a few more months she'll start to become <laughs> a, fr- a little worried about me a- a- amused you know, in a Where's my money type way? Well, yeah. You know, like she's getting offers for some pretty sweet gigs in oh, the beginning of the year. And I'm just like, uh, I don't know. I don't really have a a mission right now. I don't know. I, and, yeah, maybe I'll regret it when I'm trying to retire. And I go, why did I take that year and not do as much performing? But I think I'm okay with it. I kind of like knowing that... I control the stand-up, and the stand-up doesn't control me. I was always like that. I always saw it as a hobby. I never saw it as a job. That's why I think I'm so lucky. Well, like Trey Parker, who's the creator of South Park, will talk about how when he's in the room and they've hit a wall with all the writers, he'll be like, everyone go out and watch two movies and uh, do some activity. See you tomorrow. Like, let's not try to sit here and break down why it is we can't crack this storyline. Like, just go absorb new material, sure. find some inspiration. And and I remember now what you had said to Barry. You said sometimes, I remember it because it really stuck with me. You said, I was at a really sweet Oscar party the other night. And I left to go do my set at the comedy store. And sometimes I will um, book myself for a set just to avoid having to make plans. And so it's reminiscent of what you're saying. It's like, can I be, you know, can I do the plans for yeah, once? Yeah, it really is interesting. And, I, you know, you, you mentioned Chris D'Elia and Joe Rogan and the guys at the comedy store and the gals at the comedy store. You know, I see Ali Wong there and Whitney Cummings. And these people have full lives, families, nice houses, and they're back in the gym every night. It really is like something you got to do full on. And I felt like maybe I'm not going to do it full on for a few months. Let me just sort of enjoy that I got all this done this year. The Bruce Willis roast, roast battle, historical roast, bumping mics. I did it all in a world tour with Chris Rock. All in the first half of the year. Killer. Killer. Dude. All, well, I guess all through September, October. With with, a, with another six weeks to kill. Yeah. And enjoy. So I go, all right, you know, this will be my mental vacation. And also a way to own it in my head and go, uh, it doesn't have to be what they once called a treadmill to oblivion. Mm. You know, that's what they call radio. You know, and in a way I always saw comedy like that, like, 
oh, the biggest opportunities I ever had was because I was ready, you know. In 1995, big star, George Clooney canceled on Letterman, and they needed a comic, and I was, I was ready because I was in fight and shape. Maybe now, today, I'm not in fight and shape, but it's, I don't know, I still went up at the American Legion Hall on Saturday night and ripped the roof off the place, Yeah, and I was, I was definitely rusty, but nobody knew that but me, you know. Do you, uh, okay, my last two questions. Sure. You've, you've established yourself as this, you know, amongst the legendary comedians of this era, and you've also carved out this niche that, that seems as though, it's almost as if, like, I feel like the roasting, like, opened up the kink in the hose. Like, all of a sudden you found this thing that you was so specific to you, and then it just was, like, full pressure out. And all these beautiful things came from it. Had you not found the roasting, and you were just sort of, like, more of a, uh, I don't even want to say down the line, but you were a comedian with bits, and you didn't have this, like, extra thing that was so specifically you. Do you ever, like, contemplate what that would have looked like? No. <laughs> and I can't help but wonder what it would have been. I feel lucky that I found my lane. And I have a few friends to thank for pushing me down that lane. But what would that other lane have been? Might have been an easier ride. Might have been a more lucrative ride or a more popular ride. Think so? More, more popular? Who the fuck knows? You think roasting is such a walk in the park all the time? No. You know how many people have been pissed off and censor it? You know, it's like, it's fine now, but it was hard. Right. Explaining to people and the clubs and, wait, and then, you know, then you do a big Comedy Central roast and then you go to your comedy club in Nashville and... They don't know you as a comic. They know you as a roaster. So you're popular, but you're not necessarily a draw. Wow. Like there was a trans, a big, it, it wasn't easy. And roasting was, was like a lost art. It was like saying you're into jousting or Latin. No one knew what it was. Yeah. When I, when it got, when I started really to, to lane it out and dig it in and like you say, un, uncrink the hose. So what would it have been? It might have been a nice, might have been nice. I'm lucky I found it because this worked out. I could have found nothing. Most comedians that don't find a lane, they either peter out or they fall into something a little less exciting. You know? Yeah. There's other jobs in show business that comics do that aren't necessarily as glamorous or as exciting. Like roasting is like driving a race car. It's it's great. You can say whatever you want. You get surrounded by stars. And I've evolved it into social commentary and the other things that, I, that I'm interested in. I've made it more adult, if you will, and that it's about I, mean, I could do a roast in a jail or a roast in a, for migrants at the border or I can roast cops in Boston. And they all kind of get it, but for a long time, it was a hard sell. Wow. 
Yeah, you don't you don't think about all the things that it took to get to this moment. Oh God, there's people that will be mad at me forever. Really? Oh, just, just people who are bad sports. Not many, but one or two, three along the way that you never forget, and you go, God, the roasting thing, man. It's tough sometimes. And you don't think people time? think you're mean when they first meet you. Now it's an enlightened time. People kind of get what I do, and they get what roasting is. It's a movement. But when it was just a, an art, a lost art, it was it wasn't easy. I mean, I you know, for the very few people that don't know Jeff Ross right away, I would say the Roastmaster General, and they'd be like, "Oh, like right. you know," and that's cool yeah. to like have two monikers. <laughs> you know, it's powerful. Yeah, it's it's like. Uh... I do kind of love that. Yeah, what's not to love? But it's earned, so I don't think about it too much. Right. I believed it before most people. But I also questioned it more than most people. So I don't let it... If it all went away, Josh, roasting became unpopular, or I became unpopular i'd serve i'd be all right that's part of what taking this little break has taught me and i always kind of knew it and you're not going to believe me but it's true when i was 23 or 4 i was up for a tv show you do seven minutes on mtv or something and even before that like when it was still sort of in front of me I said to myself, I said, if I could just do it once, do stand-up once on TV for five, six minutes, just be able to say whatever I want, total control over my content for once on TV, I don't care if I ever do it again. And I still feel that way. I do it because it pays and I like it and I love it and I've grown to be good at it. But it doesn't define me in a way that you'd think it would. Yeah. So my, uh, we should end it there. And yet my last question, because I ask everyone this <laughs> <laughs> at the end of every pod is, if you had the one or two Jeff Ross commandments, truths that you have discovered for yourself that you would want to impress upon someone else if you were trying to just leave them with something that you find incredibly important. What would it be? Well, the one that comes to my mind isn't a commandment, but it's a guidance that I use. And no one taught it to me. I taught it to myself. And maybe you saw it upstairs. I built a sign to remind me to enjoy the process. Hmm. And it doesn't mean party. It doesn't mean anything to me other than if you're waiting for the accolades, the Emmy, the Oscar, you're in the wrong business. If you're waiting for the finish line, you're in the wrong business. If you're waiting for the paycheck, you're in the wrong business. But if you can enjoy or relish or absorb the rejection the same way you do the 
the adoration. If you can enjoy the middle seat on southwest to Vegas, the same way you enjoy the applause at the end of the show that night, if you can find some humor in it all and some upside and a smile even when you're getting no laughs, then you're enjoying the process and you will sustain and you will last and you will thrive. Never too high, never too low. When things are going bad, I do not weep. When things are going great, I rarely celebrate. I try to stay in the middle so that I don't get hurt. I think that's right on. Bumpy Mike's out today. Woof. Watch that shit. Yes! Get a, it took so long. It's out. Yo, get a, if you don't have a Netflix subscription, look at your life and think a lot about what you're doing with yourself and then get one. Does this mean I have to get one? Do you not have one? Shh. Does it not come with a free membership Shh. when you shoot a special? I just don't watch TV. Really? I always, I always watch Netflix with my friends and they always have it. You're one of those people. It's all right. I steal it from my mother-in-law. I'll give you the login. <laughs> I'm going to go get my own account right now. Sorry, Stacy. <laughs> Thanks, dude. This a lot is of the fun, best. Josh. Thanks for yeah. your thoughtful questions. Thank you. That was it. Jeff Ross, thank you for doing the pod. What a dream. Um, I appreciate you, dude. I'm, I'm talking to him like he's listening. Maybe he is. I don't know if the people that do the podcasts actually listen to it, but the truth is, once they do it, nah, they don't owe me anything. Anyway, Bumpy Mike's on Netflix now. Thick Skin, his podcast, linked in the liner notes. Guys, have a great week. Um, the holidays are upon us. Annoying holiday parties are coming. Good luck with that. Try your best to, you know, not hate everything and everyone around you. Um, and just, yeah, be in the moment because, uh, I've, I've been told that that's a good thing, but I, I don't know what that's like. I prefer to live in fear of the, the, the future or resentment of the past, but you know, that's my little recipe on how to be good and unhappy. <laughs> Feel free to, to build that pie of sadness. Um, anyway, guys have a great week. Uncle Josh loves you. Sorry. I know it's creepy when I call myself uncle Josh. Okay. Bye. <laughs>